Pillow, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 255, special Labor Day edition. Today's big Bible question, how important are spiritual gifts? So a happy and fruitful and glorious Monday to you, dear friends, whether you work today or not, I hope that the Lord provides you great rest for your souls. Now, we'll do a shorter podcast today in order to facilitate you having some great times with your family or on your couch or whatever. Our readings today see us leaving for Samuel, which is kind of sad because it's been a rollicking adventure, and moving into 2 Samuel chapter 1, which starts out yeah, pretty much just as interesting and about as violent as we've come to expect. Uh, somebody's going to die. We also read Psalms 49. I don't think anybody dies there. Ezekiel 10. Eh, maybe a lot of people there. And 1 Corinthians 12, which is a violence-free chapter. It also introduces the longest extended discussion on spiritual gifts in the entire Bible. And that, spiritual gifts, gifts of the Spirit, the charismata, if you will, is one of my favorite topics to teach on in the entire Bible. And it's been an interesting topic to me since childhood. I think it's pretty incredibly important because, you know, if you think about it, if God desires to give his people gifts, then how wonderful is that? And also how important it must be for us to use those gifts and receive those gifts and employ those gifts and enjoy those gifts in accordance with his will and his word. So let's go ahead and read Paul's introduction to this topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord, and there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all of these, distributing to each person as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it's not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. 
And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, leading, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts. And I will show you an even better way. So when I read Paul's teaching on the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and you know, also Ephesians and some of the other places in the New Testament, 1 Peter, etc., uh, I sort of get a strange picture in my mind from childhood. Now, as with all in illustrations, this one is imperfect, and this one's probably more imperfect than many of the others. But I wonder, did you ever watch the Transformers? I'm not necessarily talking about the movies. I'm talking about the cartoons from the 80s. I grew up on the Transformers and G.I. Joe and other cartoons like that. And there was this um, thing, I creature. I don't know what you would call it. So, so you're familiar, surely, with Transformers. Transformers, basically, uh, the good guys are, are, uh, like vehicles that can transform into robots, and the bad guys are usually plane type things that can transfer into evil robots. Well, there was this, gr this group of Transformers called the Constructicons. They were all in their, uh, their, non-transformed form. They were like construction vehicles, like a bulldozer, a crane, a wrecking ball, etc. But uh, they had this special ability that the other Transformers did not have. They could combine together to form one giant robot that was made out of all of their individual parts. Like one of the robots made the one foot and the lower leg, basically, and the other robot made the other leg, and then one made the chest, one made the head, and then there were two arms, I think, if I'm remembering that correctly. Now, that's a strange way, maybe a really strange way to view the body of Christ, but I think it's kind of similar we are all part of the body of Christ, and each one of us has a function and a role. And we come together to form one thing, the body of Christ. The many become one. And we all have a gifting that is designed to benefit the whole body. Now, the church is not designed to be pastor or priest-centric because Jesus is the center. He's the head. The church is designed to function just like a body, which means that everybody has a crucial and important role and a different role. And we are supposed to be so tightly bound to each other that when one of us suffers, all of us suffer. And when one of us is celebrating, all of us rejoice. So, Eating a nice bowl of Oreo O cereal causes my whole body to rejoice, even though only a few of my members actually participate in the consumption. On the other hand, stubbing my pinky toe on a concrete stair step causes my whole body to suffer, even though it's only my smallest appendage on just one foot that's impacted. That's so it is with the body of Christ. So I want to mention three quick dynamics that the Word teaches us about these gifts of the Spirit. 
Number one, we are supposed to desire spiritual gifts. That's a double repeated command in scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, 31, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. We're supposed to desire them. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and above all, that you may prophesy. That's a command in Scripture. We should want these gifts among the whole body of Christ, and also we should want them personally for us to use. So, number one, desire the gifts. Number two, we're supposed to use our gifts. And you know what that means? That means fundamentally, according to the Word of God, everybody who is a saved Christian has a spiritual gift from God. And and there may be some cases where there's more than one, but everybody has one supernaturally empowered gift. We talked about that on a previous episode where we've discussed spiritual gifts. We've done it a few times. If you'd like to read more about that, just come to BibleReadingPodcast.com and the handy-dandy search bar. You might have to scroll down a little bit to get to it, so maybe it's not super handy-dandy, but it's there. Scroll down just a bit and you'll... put in uh, the search bar spiritual gifts and you'll find out all the episodes that we've talked about the gifts of the spirit or the spiritual gifts. Well, we're supposed to use our gifts because we each one have one. I'll go to 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 that kind of informs us on that. Peter says, based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. When we use our spiritual gifts, we glorify God through Jesus Christ. Now, I want to note here 1 Timothy 4.14 and 2 Timothy 1.6. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor who co-wrote uh, several books of the Bible with him. An amazingly talented and prolific guy was Timothy. First Timothy 4.14 says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. So Paul says to Timothy, Hey, you have a gift. Don't neglect it. Practice it. Be committed to it so people can see that happening. 2 Timothy 1.6 is sort of similar. Paul says, I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but of power, love, and sound judgment. And guys and ladies, if it was possible for Timothy's gift to be dormant, a guy actually trained by Paul who wrote or co-wrote the second most um, number of books of scripture in the Bible next to Paul because he co-wrote several of Paul's books, if it's possible for Timothy, a member of the apostolic team who saw miracles to neglect his gift, it's possible for us to do the same thing as well. So we have to be diligent and zealous to use our gifts. Finally, number three, Grow the fellowship. Grow the church with our gifts. We're commanded to do that. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts. That's not a criticism. Paul says, seek to excel in building up the church. All right, so use your gifts to build, to edify. Verse 26. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. 
The whole goal of spiritual gifts is to glorify God and to build up the church. Very, very important. We need the evangelists going with the gospel. We need the encouragers encouraging. We need the mercy showers pouring out mercy to a lost and dying world. And you know, sometimes the evangelists aren't going to go out and share the gospel if they aren't encouraged by the encouragers. The mercy showers might not be able to show mercy quite as well if somebody doesn't show mercy to them. The givers might be struggling with the faith to radically give and might need a person with the gift of faith to exhort them. So let's bring Pastor Sam Storms in to say a word about the importance of spiritual gift from his excellent book, A Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts. And Sam Storms says, There's a crucial principle we need to understand from the outset. Spiritual gifts are not God bestowing to his people something external to himself. They are not some tangible stuff or substance separable from God. Spiritual gifts are nothing less than God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power in our wills, and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. Spiritual gifts must never be viewed deistically, as if a God somewhere out there has sent some thing to us down here, spiritual gifts are God present in, with, and through human thoughts, human deeds, human words, and human love. The language Paul uses to make this point is explicit and repetitive. For a fuller understanding of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, let's look at the word translated manifestation in verse 7. This is Paul's way of saying that the Spirit himself is made manifest or visibly evident in our midst whenever the gifts of the Spirit are in use. Spiritual gifts are concrete disclosures of divine activity, and they're only secondarily human activity. Spiritual gifts are the presence of the Spirit himself coming to uh, relatively clear, even dramatic expression in the way we do ministry. Gifts are God going public among his people. To reject spiritual gifts, to turn from this immediate and gracious divine enabling, is in a sense to turn from God. It's no small issue whether one or affirms or denies these manifestations of the divine presence. In affirming them, we welcome him. In denying them, we deny him. Whether spiritual gifts are for today is not some secondary tangential issue that exists only for theologians to debate. It directly touches the very mission of the church and how she lives out her calling how we speak to the world, the way we encounter the enemy, the expectations with which we minister to the broken and wounded and despairing are bound up in how we answer the question, shall we or shall we not be the church of the Bible? Shall we or shall we not build the church with the tools and gifts that God has provided? Amen. Words to ponder from Dr. Storms. We continue with Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David asked him, where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. How was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead. Also Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David asked the young man who had brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, he replied, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, so I answered, I'm at your service. 
And he asked me, who are you? And I told him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I am mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of the clothes and tore them, and all of the men with him did the same. They mourned, wept, and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword, for Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. And David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien, he said. I'm an Amalekite. David questioned him, How is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David summoned one of his servants and said, Come here and kill him. And the servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, Your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. David sang the following lament for Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the Judahites be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Jasher. The splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Do not tell it in Gath. Don't announce it in the marketplaces of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, and the daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. Mountains of Gilboa, let no dew or rain be on you, or fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer anointed with oil. Jonathan's bow never retreated, Saul's sword never returned unstained from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty. Saul and Jonathan loved and delighted, they were not parted in life or in death, they were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments. How the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. Wow, what a powerful song and lament. By the way, Some of you might be remembering our last passage, the very last chapter of Samuel, and saying, wait a minute, how did the Amalekite kill Saul when it says that Saul fell on his sword? Well, that's a great question. I think the answer to that is really pretty simple. The swords of the Hebrews in this time period may not be the long swords that you and I might think of, It's very possible that Saul's sword was a bit shorter than what we're used to. Although, of course, Goliath did have quite a long sword, so we're not sure. But remember that Saul was a mighty man and a powerful man and a head taller than most of the other Israelites. In fact, maybe all of the other Israelites. It is very possible that in falling on his sword, and I think this is the explanation, In falling on his sword, maybe he did it poorly because he was injured. Maybe at the last minute he flinched, or maybe it just did not strike a killing blow. Did Saul know that the heart was where the sword needed to pierce? Maybe. We don't know. Maybe he pierced himself in the stomach and expected to die, but um, stomach wounds are not always quickly... Uh, they don't always bring death quickly. So it's very possible that Saul dealt himself a mortal wound, but it was a long time coming, and that is how the Amalekite find him, found him. So I see no necessary um, contradiction there between the last chapter of First Samuel and the first chapter of Second Samuel. 
I think that's probably what happened, and it's a very easy explanation. We continue with Psalm chapter 49, verse 1. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who inhabit the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth speaks wisdom. My heart's meditation brings understanding. I turn my ear to a proverb. I explain my riddle with a liar. Why should I fear in times of trouble? The iniquity of my foes surrounds me. They trust in their wealth and boast of their abundant riches. Yet these cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God, since the price of redeeming him is too costly. One should forever stop trying so that he may live forever and not see the pit. For one can see that the wise die. The foolish and stupid also pass away. Then they leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their permanent homes, their dwellings from generation to generation, though they have named estates after themselves. But despite his assets, mankind will not last. He is like the animals that perish. This is the way of those who are arrogant and of their followers who approve of their words. Selah. Like sheep who are headed for Sheol, death will shepherd them. The upright will rule over them in the morning, and their form will waste away in Sheol. Far from the lofty abode, but God will redeem me from the power of Sheol, for he will take me. Do not be afraid when a person gets rich, when the wealth of his house increases, for when he dies, he will take nothing at all. His wealth will not follow him down, though he blesses himself during his lifetime, and you are acclaimed when you do well for yourself. He will go to the generation of his ancestors. They will never see the light. Mankind with his assets, but without understanding, is like the animals that perish. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 1. Then I looked, and there above the expanse over the heads of the cherubim was something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli. The Lord spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Go inside the wheelwork beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with blazing coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. So he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing to the south of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherub to the threshold of the temple. The temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the Lord's glory. The sound of the cherubim's wings could be heard as far as the outer court. It was like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. After the Lord commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from inside the wheelwork, from among the cherubim. The man went in and stood beside a wheel. Then the cherub reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took some and put it in the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of human hands under their wings. I looked, and there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub. The luster of the wheels was like the gleam of barrel. In appearance, all four looked alike, like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they would go in any of the four directions without pivoting as they moved. But wherever the head faced, they would go in that direction without pivoting as they went. Their entire bodies, including their backs, hands, wings, and the wheels that the four of them had, were full of eyes all around. As I listened, the wheels were called the wheel work. Each one had four faces. One was the face of a cherub, the second the face of a human, the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. The cherubim ascended. These were the living creatures I had seen by the Kabar Canal. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved beside them, and when they lifted their wings to rise from the earth, even then the wheels did not veer away from them. When the cherubim stopped, the wheels stood still, and when they ascended, the wheels ascended with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord moved away from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. 
The cherubim lifted their wings and ascended from the earth right before my eyes. The wheels were beside them as they went. The glory of the God of Israel was above them, and it stopped at the entrance to the eastern gate of the Lord's house. These were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kabar Canal, and I recognized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, and each had four wings with what looked like something like human hands under their wings. Their faces looked like the same faces I had seen by the Kabar Canal. Each creature went straight ahead. Amen. Well, friends, may the Lord give you a wonderful and restful day. God bless you and Godspeed.